Today's Bible reading can be found on page 1081 of the Church Bibles. It's uh, John chapter 13, verses 18 to 30, just repeating, page 1081 of the Church Bibles, John chapter 13, verses 18 to 30. Jesus predicts his betrayal. I am, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfil this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to, to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it into, in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought that Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Matt, thanks very much. Um, do keep your Bibles open at that page and... If you haven't got one, um, they are at the back, so um, feel free just to pop your, ha- pop your hand up. Someone will bring you one or, or head to the back and get one. Let me just find it myself. Page 1081. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words written down many years ago for us. Thank you for your spirit who is alive today and who speaks through these words. And so whether these things are very familiar to us or new and we find it all very strange, we pray that you would speak to us and encourage us and help us uh, to see Jesus and to learn what it means to follow him. Amen. Well, what is the plan? It's the question, isn't it, that our nation is asking at the moment What's the plan for the next two weeks beginning to take shape? The lying in state, the the journey to Edinburgh, the journey down to London, the the date of the funeral, a time of national mourning that no one has ever experienced before. What is the plan? And it won't surprise you to hear that many churches and many ministers have changed their plans a lot over the course of the last uh, couple of days. Our service is quite different to what it was on Thursday morning. Bells have been rung. Uh, churches have been open for prayer and reflection. Uh, communities have been invited to sign books of condolence, and um, we have one at the back if you'd like to um, 
put something in that afterwards. Uh, Plenty of new sermons have been written as well. But I hope you'll forgive me for staying with the text that I plan to preach on um, before uh, any of us thought this event this week would turn out as it has. Of course, it's not exactly the same sermon as the draft that I pretty much got finished by Thursday lunchtime. Uh, It's been adjusted, but on reflection, it's not entirely inappropriate for a day like today. It is a somber passage. It is marked by shock and sadness. It records a moment just before the king departs his earthly life, just as our queen has recently departed hers. And you may be a regular in this church. You may be drawn here for the first time today. You may know exactly how you're feeling. You may feel very uncertain and confused. We probably do want to know the plan for the days ahead. But despite the importance of plans that will be put in place following the death of the Queen, there is no more important plan to prepare for than God's plan for his kingdom. God's plan for his kingdom that is governed by the King of Kings. And that is the subject at the heart of these chapters in John's Gospel. Uh, We've covered the first 12 and a half chapters of the Gospel over various points over the last uh, two two or three years. And we're picking up the story today a little way into Jesus' final conversation with his disciples. It's a conversation all about God's plan, all about what happens when the king is no longer around. How can his subjects, his disciples, keep trusting that plan? What part will they have to play in it? What about when the plan looks as if it's been derailed? What about when it looks as if sinister forces more powerful than God have overtaken the plan? What about when his people are overcome with grief and sadness? What's the plan? Well, we just need to back up a little bit as we get started. So let me read chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knows the plan. And he knows that the critical moment has arrived. He knows that within 24 hours, he will be dead and buried. It will not take him by surprise, as events this week took us by surprise. But first, before that happens, Jesus gathers his disciples for a final meal. And much to their surprise, in the middle of dinner, he gets down on his hands and knees and he washes their feet. And he tells them that they must do the same. That's part of the plan for the future. Jesus will wash their hearts clean from sin when he dies for them on the cross. And they, in turn, must follow his example of radical, self-sacrificial, servant-hearted love for the rest of their lives. It's the example the Queen has followed steadfastly all her life. You see, she knew and she believed the truth that Jesus promised to all who follow him. Verse 16. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. See, Jesus knows that his disciples will be blessed if they follow his example. But he knows that they need more than a promise of blessing. Because the plan that is about to unfold is unlike anything they'd ever considered before. At times it is going to look as if things have totally spiraled out of control. At times it will look like evil forces have triumphed. Jesus is determined, absolutely determined, that his disciples keep on trusting him. And he wants the same for you and me today. Even if this morning you're here today and you wouldn't yet call yourself a convinced follower of Jesus, he wants us to know that we can trust him. 
As we follow him, it may look as if others have turned their backs on him. That might happen. It may look as if evil has got the upper hand. It may look as if the season of grief and sadness will never pass. But Jesus says to his disciples, I've got it all in hand. Put yourself in my hands. And we're going to discover that in two lessons today. First of all, rejection is planned, but true disciples keep believing in Jesus. Rejection is planned, but true disciples keep believing in Jesus. This is verses 18 to 20. Verse 18, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. You see, Jesus has announced his blessing upon the 12, but as he looks around the room, he sees an odd one out, and he adds this ominous caveat. Not all the disciples are true disciples. He knows that Judas will soon betray him. Jesus alluded to Judas before. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered, Those who have had, their, uh, had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. And our writer makes it clear at that point who he was talking about, verse 11, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. It's a dark echo of what he'd said at a previous Passover. Do you remember chapter 6? Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. But at this point, at this moment in the meal, I'm not so sure that Jesus is pointing the finger at Judas, not just yet. It is more of a general statement that rejection is part of the plan. For as long as there are disciples of Jesus, some of those disciples will tragically turn their backs on the king. And so Jesus quotes a psalm in which King David describes his own experience of rejection. Not everything that is said in that psalm is a perfect mirror of Jesus' life. So in the psalm, Jesus confe- David confesses his sin, and we know that Jesus had no sin to confess, but it's a general picture David was a shadow, a type of the perfect Messiah, the perfect king that God was going to send one day to his people. And he was rejected by his friends and his closest companions. And Jesus said, the same is true for me. He says the same in the other gospels. So let me read some verses from Mark 15. Jesus said, sorry, Mark 13, brother will betray brother to death. Children will rebel against their parents. Everyone will hate you because of me. False messiahs and false prophets will appear. Jesus says, division, rebellion, rejection, even within the community of God's people, is part of the plan. It is not just Judas who literally shares the bread of Jesus at this meal who will reject him. Other so-called disciples will turn against him in the future too. But true disciples don't need to be shaken by such a grim reality. Instead, and paradoxically, that reality helps them keep trusting Jesus. You see verse 19? I am telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. There are all sorts of different ways to predict the future. The royal pundits are predicting what kind of king King Charles will be. Computer computer modelers model the impact of carbon dioxide on the atmosphere. Economists forecast the rising price of energy bills. The closer those predictions are to reality, the the more likely we are to trust the people who make those predictions and take them at their word. It's the same with Jesus, but better. Because his plan isn't based on a hunch. It's not based on an educated guess. 
he has absolutely perfect knowledge of the future, including the sad fact that some will reject him. But he tells his disciples in advance so that when it happens, they don't give up on their faith. They're not shaken and broken by it. Verse 19, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. I wonder if you've experienced that in your life. Maybe a friend or a family member has given up on the Christian faith. They used to be going for it, but now they have nothing to do with Jesus. Maybe they're antagonistic towards him. Maybe they're hostile to you, to the church. Maybe it was someone at a church you were part of, and maybe they were a person in leadership. They shared Jesus' bread, but they've turned against him. How do we respond when something like that happens? Of course we're we're sad, we grieve for that person. We maybe need to look at ourselves and consider, is there anything I've done that has pushed them away? We keep on loving them, reaching out to them, praying for them. It will be hard for us personally, grappling with that friend, that brother, that sister's decision to, to walk away. But what we don't need to do is follow in their steps. We don't give up because they've given up. The opposite is true. Verse 19, I'm telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. It's another use in this gospel of that divine name, I am, of Jesus. First spoken by God to Moses at the burning bush when he declares to to Moses his unchangeable character and his eternal existence. And Jesus throughout this gospel is saying, I am that God. I am the word made flesh. I am the eternal son of God in control of the past and the present and the future. Keep believing in me, even if others don't, because I'm telling you it's going to happen. And don't just keep believing. Keep speaking too. Verse 20, very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Before her death, the queen had begun to share her duties, hadn't she, with uh, Prince Charles. The authority was hers, but she shared it with him. And that is the kind of dynamic Jesus is describing in this verse. His father has sent him, and soon he will send his disciples. He is his father's ambassador. They are his. They keep on speaking of him. And as they do that, they need to be prepared. Some, many will believe, others won't. Some will put their trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord and King, and others will reject him, including some who who looked even for a long time to be genuine disciples. The Queen was Jesus' ambassador, wasn't she, for over 70 years. I read an article this week, it was very interesting, talking about her um, Christmas addresses and how in recent years she'd become more and more explicit about her Christian faith. For example, Christmas 2011. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. She was an ambassador, and we should be ambassadors too, in our homes, our workplaces, our schools, our friendships, our neighbourhoods. Jesus invites us into his plan to reach the world with his good news of salvation. And even when it looks as if It's not working. Even when it looks as if it's two steps forward, one step back, Jesus has got it in hand. It's part of the plan. Rejection is planned. 
but true disciples keep believing in Jesus. But what about when it's more than human rejection? What about when it looks as if God is up against dark spiritual forces that are more than his match? What's the plan then? Second, and if you're taking notes, I'm just going to adjust what's on the screen. Betrayal is permitted, but disciples must still beware Satan's plan. Betrayal is permitted, but disciples must still beware Satan's plan. Verses 21 to 30. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. So it's the same meal, but a brand new scene. And Jesus is shaken deep inside his being. It's the same word that is used when it describes his reaction to his friend Lazarus' death in chapter 11. He's shaken to the core, shaken like many people were on Thursday evening and over the last few days. And he makes explicit to his disciples what the reader has known for quite a long time. One of these men, one of his closest disciples, who has spent the last three years with him, will hand him over to his enemies. And no wonder they respond how they do. Verse 22. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Now Judas, of course, he must know that the game is up, nearly up. But the rest are perplexed and confused. It is such a blunt announcement. There's no subtlety, nowhere to hide. And an embarrassed silence falls upon the meal. And even Peter, who's pretty good at blurting stuff out, doesn't blurt something out. But he is the first one to act. And he gestures to the the beloved disciple who's the author of this gospel, maybe mouthing it silently across the room. Find out who he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So the rest of the disciples don't hear Jesus' answer. The act of giving Judas that piece of bread was an ordinary mealtime moment. It's a gesture of love. It's what the host did in a meal like that. It would raise no suspicions. But this moment was forever imprinted on the author's memory. He describes himself in chapter 21 as the one who saw Judas given the piece of bread. And it's as if here he describes his own body language, leaning back against Jesus. Who is it? And for some reason or other, he holds his peace. He doesn't tell anyone. Maybe he didn't fully understand at the moment what betrayal meant. Maybe he he assumed that his all-powerful master would be able to deal with it just as he'd calmed a storm and raised the dead and fed 5,000 with a few bread and fish. But as he looked back, there was no doubting what had happened. Verse 27. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. It has been said that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he doesn't exist. But Christianity is never afraid or embarrassed to acknowledge the reality of a real personal devil, an enemy of all that is good. Jesus describes him earlier in this gospel as a murderer, And now he has his chance to kill. 
I think we can assume that the beloved disciple doesn't actually see Satan physically enter Judas. But as he looks back on the moment when Judas took the bread, he realizes that that was the decisive act. See, Satan, verse 2, had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. He's already put the idea into Judas's heart. But this is the moment when 100% he says, I'm in. He commits himself to the diabolical plan. But here's the extraordinary thing. This dreadful, satanic, wicked plan is permitted by Jesus. It could never have happened without his say-so. Jesus takes the bread and gives it to Judas. And in that moment, he gives Satan the extra yards on his leash that he needs. Up to that point, he has only been allowed to put the idea into Judas's heart. But now he can go further. And so Jesus says to him, what you are about to do, do quickly. It is a word addressed to Judas, but it could equally well have been spoken to Satan. It recalls that exchange between God and Satan in the book of Job. Do you know, you know the story, Satan comes to God and says, look at your servant Job, he's got all this wonderful stuff. He only loves you because he gets all this wonderful stuff. And God knows that that is not true. And so he allows Satan to wreak havoc in Job's life, to prove it. He says to Satan, everything he has in your, is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And then in Job chapter 2, he says, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. It has been said that Satan is God's Satan. He's on a leash. God saved, gave Satan permission to act against Job, and now Jesus gives Satan permission to act against him. What are you about to do? Do quickly. Verse 28. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. You see, the other disciples can only guess what Judas is up to. Only he knows what he's really up to. They are in the dark, but he is in, in, he is in an even worse darkness. You see that again and again in John's Gospel. There are words, ordinary words, that have two levels of meaning. Yes, it was night, but it is also spiritually, even satanically, night. He went out, and it was night. Jesus has claimed, hasn't he? He said, I am the light of the world. He says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. He says, walk in the light before darkness overtakes you. Don't stay in the darkness. And now a man who has spent three years of his life with the light of the world, who has heard all those promises, chooses the darkness instead. Chooses to walk away from the light. And Jesus' words are tragically fulfilled in him. This is chapter 11. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. 
Satan entered into Judas. Judas went out. You see, Judas was unique. But that is what Satan dreams about for you and me as well. That is his plan. He strains with every fiber of his being, plotting and scheming. He never takes a rest. He will not be done until he's got us until, or until we're safe with Jesus in heaven. He longs to see us walking away from the true light. He longs to save you and me. He, she went out and it was night. That is his plan. And we must beware. In all seasons of life, perhaps especially in the religious life. You see, what did the others think of Judas? They thought he's fulfilling his religious duties. The devil loves it when on the outside we look the part, but when on the inside there's no reality. Judas' outward appearance enabled him to get away with it. But Jesus looks on the heart, and there is nowhere to hide from his light. So we must beware the devil's plan. We must put on the armor of God. We must ask Jesus, the one who says, no one can snatch them out of my hand to hold us more tightly than we can hold on to him. The devil is a fearful enemy, but God is stronger. He, set, he was at that fateful moment when Satan entered into Judas, and he still is today. Betrayal is permitted, but disciples must still beware Satan's plan. Well, we do not know all the details, do we, of the, next, of the plan becoming clearer by the day of the next week or so. But the dark days of mourning will give way to the celebration, eventually, of the crowning of a new king. And this season of betrayal and grief and mourning for Jesus and his disciples will be followed by the joy of new and eternal life on Easter Day. As Jesus will go on to say, chapter 14, verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You see, our nation has a new king, but the followers of Jesus serve the king of kings. Some will reject him. Sometimes it will look as if his enemies have the upper hand, but he is on the throne. He is good. And may we entrust our lives to him. May we follow the example of our late queen, who set that so well for us for so long. Shrive our heads. And in a moment or two, Rob will come and lead us in prayer.